0: Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FTadvisor.com. Each week, we'll be joined by a guest from the industry to discuss the week in news and some of the most pressing industry issues. I'm Ellie Duncan, Features Editor of FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. Joining me today is Kay Ingram, Director of Public Policy at LEBC. Welcome, Kay. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, First of all, we're going to be discussing probate fees, which have been in the news recently. We've certainly covered this story on FT Advisor and in Financial Advisor. So this follows the Ministry of Justice's announcement last November that it would go ahead with a banded structure for probate fees, which essentially means that probate fees are going to rise. So there was uh, a flat fee of £215 paid by all estates of more than £5,000. But under the tiered charges that are being proposed by the MOJ, these could range from £300 to £20,000. I know, Kay, that you've previously said these extra charges can't be justified. Why do you think that?
1: Absolutely not. And we've actually uh, made our opposition to this change very clear to the government. And in fact, we have made a referral to the Competition and Markets Authority because we feel that these fees which will hit bereaved families are unfair Solicitors we've spoken to who deal with probate day in, day out tell us there is no more work involved, whether the estate is worth £50,000 or £5 million. And yet the government are proposing to introduce what is effectively a probate tax because the uh, charge will be a percentage of the value of the estate and it's actually not going to be £20,000 anymore. That was the original proposal. The top amount paid now will be £6,000, which the government are... Um hailing as a, a concession, but the fact remains that the uh, bereaved family will still have to find that money before they can access the assets of the estate. And the problem with this from a practical point of view is that vulnerable customers uh, will be in a position where they're having to find money to pay the probate fee without being able to access the deceased estate. And that will cause difficulties for some families. Um, so that is why we oppose the measure. Um, And that is why we've made a referral now to the Competitions and Markets Authority to see if they can investigate this as being an exploitative pricing practice.
0: And when do you expect to hear from them on that?
1: Well, I've already had an acknowledgement of my uh, initial inquiry. Um, I don't know what the timescales are in terms of them looking at it. The measure hasn't quite become law yet, as far as I know. The reason I say that is that this was not debated on the floor of the House of Commons, and that's another objection we have to it. But it was actually passed by an obscure uh, committee with uh, made up of 17 MPs with nine voting in favour and eight against. Uh, and... The government's uh, justification for this change is that the courts need more money to finance their activities and that the, they see this as a way of uh, charging those people with larger estates more for that service. They've admitted that the cost to the Ministry of Justice of administering estates is the same regardless of the size of the estate, which is why I call this a probate tax and not a probate fee. But the government have consistently said it's not a tax because if it was, it would have to be debated as part of a finance bill. Uh, They've said it's a fee and therefore, as it's a fee... We've referred it to the CMA who've already done very good work where funeral directors and care homes have tried to exploit bereaved families and action has been taken against those um, those businesses to protect vulnerable consumers and that's something which the FCA will be focusing on this year.
0: And it's important to point out, isn't it, that bereaved families are vulnerable clients, aren't absolutely,
1: they? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, even you know, even when someone is expecting a death in the family, it still comes as a shock, and it's a time at which advisers have to be very mindful that uh, widows, widowers, children are not necessarily in the best frame of mind to make long-term decisions. We put special measures in place to make sure they have sufficient space and time to think about things carefully before they make decisions on investments. And what this is doing is putting pressure on bereaved families, who in many cases, solicitors tell me, will have to borrow money to pay the fees. At the moment, if a solicitor applies for probate, the fee is only £155. And solicitors generally will fund that up front themselves and then put it add it to their bill at the end of the process. Uh, but solicitors are t- telling me that they can't afford to do that quite naturally if the fees are going to go up by these very large amounts. And that will mean that families who may not have access to funds themselves will need to borrow money in order to get access to their loved one's assets. What we're actually advising clients to do is to make sure they leave enough funds either directly held by their beneficiaries or executors or um, in a separate account to pay for both the funeral and the probate fees or alternative they arrange life policies and trust which will be outside of the estate and also they make sure that their pension nominations are up to date because also those assets will fall outside of the estate and can be accessed before probate is given.
0: And is there also a risk that this banded structure a just complicating inheritance tax, which is an already sort of quite difficult to understand system for for many people, particularly when they are bereaved and potentially quite vulnerable.
1: It's a double it's a double taxation because and one of the MPs actually objected in the committee to this change did actually make this point that as well as paying the probate fee the family will also have to pay inheritance tax on that amount too so it's not it's not uh, deducted from the value of the estate but i think my concern is that we already have 15 billion of unclaimed assets in the uk in bank and building society accounts life insurance policies etc and You know, increasingly executors and beneficiaries are getting older because we're all living longer. And there is the problem that sometimes people just can't cope with the paperwork as it is now. So if we're then asking them to go off and borrow money and, generally speaking, older people don't like to get into debt, it's something they try and avoid, then I can see a lot of people not actually applying for probate and some assets not being claimed. And that's a worry that's shared by a number of solicitors that we've spoken to.
0: Okay, thank you, Kay. Um, Another issue that I want to come on to talk about, and I know it's something that that you've been vocal about as well uh, recently, and that's the gender pensions gap. I mean, it's never really out of the news that much these days, Uh, particularly now companies are having to publish sort of gender pay gap figures. I mean, is it too simplistic to say that we end up with a gender pensions gap precisely because of the gender pay gap?
1: The gender pay gap is probably the biggest contributor to the gender pensions gap, but it's not the whole story. Um, Obviously, if someone's got lower pay, bearing in mind that pensions tend to be based on pay either as a defined contribution percentage that's going into their pension or, in the case of defined benefit, will affect the final salary pension that's that's given. Um, So it is a problem from that perspective. However, women also face bigger and longer uh, gaps in their pension funding through um, being out of work to look after children. At the moment, 35% of mothers are looking after children and not actively uh, actively working in the economy, and only 7% of fathers. So there's a clear differential there. What I would like to see is a number of uh, reforms. Obviously, closing the pay gap will help a lot, and that's that's good to see that some companies are taking action on that and the government's taking it very seriously. But I think there are other things that can be done both by the women themselves and by uh, legislators looking at some of the unintended consequences of of some of the rules. For example, there are now 10 million people auto enrolled and this week the government um, hailed that as a great success which it is. Um, however, there are 9 million workers who are not auto-enrolled and most of those are women. And the reason for that is that we have two uh, barriers to auto enrolment. One is the age barrier. People don't get auto-enrolled till they're 22 or above and it stops at 65. And the other is the wage barrier. Uh, those who earn less than £10,000 don't get auto-enrolled. This affects women more than men because they tend to be the ones who go back to work part-time and they tend to have lower pay because they've missed out in the workplace for a few years, so their skills aren't up to date. Or they accept a lower paid position just to have flexibility to be able to have time off to also combine their work with childcare and other responsibilities. So what I would like to see is every woman who does give up her career or her job to look after the family, to be allocated within the family budget some money to put towards a pension while she's not working. Those who are not in work can pay up to uh, 3600 a year um, into a pension and get tax relief on it at the basic rate, whether they're a taxpayer or not. And I'd like to see women who are about to go on maternity leave thinking about these issues and maybe uh, demanding that sort of pension, auto-enrolment pension as a as a wife and mother, um, as a carer, so that uh, they can continue to fund their pensions when they're not working. The other aspect of this, which has changed in the last few years, is those women who have waived child benefit because they, uh, because their partner earns more than fifty thousand pounds and they don't want to pay tax on it, uh, and. Th- these people are missing out on state pension credits, which is not obvious, because who would uh, connect the state pension with child benefit? But those women who waive the child benefit need to apply separately by claiming child benefit, but waiving payment of it so that they get credits for state pension. Otherwise, they'll also have gaps in their state pension funding as well.
0: Yes, Amber Rudd wasn't so keen to bring up that nine million figure, was she, the other day? So, um What can advisors do then uh, to help close this gap? What role can they play in all of this? I think it's a very
1: important role for advisors. And I think whenever talking to uh, women who are about to go on maternity leave in group schemes, they need to be made made aware of the value of continuing to make pension contributions. Um, We often have women who are in that position who come to us and say, I'm going to leave the pension scheme even before they've stopped working. Uh, because they're thinking of saving money because the family budget's going to be under pressure due to going from two salaries to one for a period of time. And obviously the cost of having a child are also quite significant. Um, But we advise them not to do that because someone on maternity leave... Um, is going to still get their employer contributions paid into their pension, particularly if it's a salary sacrifice scheme. And so by stopping their contribution, they're saving pennies, but actually giving up pounds in terms of employer contributions and tax relief. And then I think also encourage them to put at least some money into a pension while they're taking that career break. And when they go back to work, even if they're not earning above the 10000 threshold, to rejoin an employer scheme as soon as they can. Um, And if they decide to go self-employed, which a lot of people do because they like the flexibility to continue pension contributions throughout self-employment as well.
0: Okay, lots to think about there then when it comes to the pensions gender gap. So finally then, um, this week we're going to discuss contingent charging, which is a fairly controversial charging model, I think it's fair to say. There are plenty of people in the industry who've been quite vocal about it recently. The Work and Pensions Select Committee is fairly keen to ban it, um, as are you. Is that right, Kay?
1: That's right. Um, In our evidence to the Work and Pensions Select Committee, we would support a ban on contingent charging. We see it as being responsible for some poor practices in the transfer advice market. It's not the only reason why some transfer advice is unsuitable, but we think it's a poor business model and one that leads to a potential bias in the advice And also, it doesn't really seem right that we're asking probably one in four consumers to subsidise the other three. If you only charge the person who actually transfers, then by definition, they're paying about four times as much as they need to for that advice, because they're actually subsidising the other three or so people you've advised not to transfer if you're working on the sort of normal ratios we'd expect for transfer advice to be suitable. So we would like to ban it and we feel that that would enable advisers to be freed up to give advice to those people who can actually benefit from transferring. I think if someone says they can't afford to pay as opposed to they don't want to pay, and those are two different things, um, then that indicates it's probably not going to be suitable for them to undertake the ongoing risk of having money invested which will then provide an uncertain level of income in retirement. But guidance can play a a key part in informing groups of individuals um, about the pros and cons of transferring or not, what sort of factors will mean that they could benefit and what sort of factors would mean it probably isn't for them. And I would like to see advisory firms developing guidance services to a greater extent, uh, which can be offered a very... Uh, economic rate and then those individuals who having been through the guidance still want to explore it further need to pay a fair fee so that everybody pays their fair share of the cost of advice.
0: Are there any unintended consequences of a ban?
1: I don't think so. I mean the only exception we we felt should be made to the ban would be for those people with terminal illnesses because often their families can benefit a great deal by taking a transfer value rather than an ill health early retirement lump sum. Uh, And it may be that they wouldn't have the resources. So we we did actually say to the committee, we thought that was one case where there could be an exception. But there are other ways in which people can pay for this advice if they haven't got ready cash. Uh, We suggested, as I know others have, that we should perhaps look at a scheme pays option, similar to that used for paying the tax charges on annual and lifetime allowances. Uh, We also uh, recommended that the pensions advice allowance should become mandatory for all providers to offer that. Many providers at the moment are not offering that. That's the three times £500 allowance that can be taken from a pension. Um, And then also, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the um, £500 annual fee which an employer can pay for advice. And if your employer doesn't want to pay then there's always the possibility of obtaining it via salary sacrifice, which means at least you're getting tax and national insurance breaks on the cost of advice, bringing it down to an average of £300 or so. Uh, Net cost to the individual, for £500 worth of advice. So there are other ways in which people can't pay, but I suspect that for the majority of people, if they really can't afford to pay, that would indicate to me that they haven't got the capacity for loss and they're not going to have the appetite to pay ongoing fees which will be required unless they're going to withdraw the whole amount in one go. They will need to have advice on an ongoing basis to manage their funds and draw down. So if they can't afford to pay for upfront advice, then it's an indicator, a strong indicator, that they're unlikely to benefit from transferring.
0: And do you think contingent charging reflects poorly then on the advice industry?
1: Yes, I do actually. I think it is almost um, going back to some of the practices we saw in the 1980s. Uh, you know, obviously there have been some high profile cases, the sort of factory gating type instances and unregulated introducers. And I think they've caused a lot of damage to the reputation of the advice center, which is a shame because I'm sure the majority of advisors are doing a good job. They are looking into the individual circumstances thoroughly and only recommending a transfer when it's it's really suitable. But that's you know, that's something that is put into doubt by contingent charging, because even if the advisor isn't biased, there is always going to be that doubt that the advice was biased by that remuneration method.
0: Thank you very much, Kay, for joining me this week. Do join us at the same time next week for another FT Advisor podcast. Thanks for listening.